Michael Sonbert and Antonio Vance have held nearly every job in K-12 education. They've coached, trained, and partnered with thousands of teachers and school leaders from over 100 cities and eight countries around the world. They are Skyrocket Educator Training, and these are their informal observations. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Informal Observations with Skyrocket Education. I'm Michael Sombert, the founder of Skyrocket, here as always with our Chief Schools Officer, Dr. Antonio Vance. Dr. Vance, how are you doing today, man? I'm excited, man, especially about our guest today. So super charged up. This is our season two finale. We have a special guest tonight and we are getting right into it. Uh, schedules, this person was generous enough to make time and they're a very busy schedule for us. So we were getting right into the questions, right into the heart of the matter here. Our guest is, he's an educator. He's a political scientist. He's a resident fellow and director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, in addition, he writes a blog called uh, Rick Hess Straight Up for Education Week. And in addition to that, he's also a contributor at Forbes and The Hill and uh, tons of, uh, tons of uh, incredible, uh, incredible um, uh, publications. I think his proudest moment, though, if I had to say, is that he also wrote the foreword for my book, Skyrocket Your Teacher Coaching. Welcome, the one, the only Rick Hess. Welcome to Informal Observations. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. Thanks, Michael. Uh, good to be with you guys. We're happy to have you, Rick. I think it's fair to say we're going to piss some people off in this episode. I'm okay with that. I know Vance is okay with it. Oh, yeah. Rick, are you okay as well? Uh, it seems to be my lot in life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think I am just trying to like, articulate a point of view when people can take it or leave it. And man, it never seems to play out that way. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's part of the world we're we're living in, um, and let's let's get right into it. Let's get right to that point of view. I, um, Rick, let's start here. I feel like the world's gone mad, uh, and I feel like we have one side in this country who wants to ban books and almost erase anything from history that could paint our country in a negative light. Things like slavery and segregation and things like that. And on the other side, uh, I feel like there's a, a faction that wants to indoctrinate. Uh, children into becoming uh, culture warriors while not just renaming buildings or and tearing down statues, but by by melting them by melting them down. Um, what are your what are your thoughts here? And how does this how does this end? Yeah. Um, so I mean, a couple of thoughts. So so one, yeah, I think there's huge problems on both sides, and we've got a dysfunctional, polarized uh, political culture right now. Uh, although I don't think both sides deserve equal blame. Um, you know, folks, folks in the education community are at this point confident I'm going to say the progressive side is wrong. And that ain't it. No, no, no. I, I, I think, you know, um, I, I think the folks who want to ban books on the right and who don't want to teach um, about uh, slavery are mostly a figment of the New York Times and NPR's imagination. Mm. If you look at this polling on this, for instance, 90% of Republicans say, of course, schools should teach about slavery. So when you look at like a lot of the, about the CRT, where, where, they, where they have deep problems is they don't believe that students should be taught um, that America is a slaveocracy, uh, mm. like, you know, as a 1619 project has it. Um, they don't believe that America is systemically racist. Now, if you say, wait a minute, don't you believe that on average, black children grow up in poorer homes than white children? Don't you believe that they are more likely to live in poverty. Don't you believe that? They'll say, yeah, I accept that. So partly it's a question of definitions. Um, mm. an agreement that there are systemic disparities, but the way this gets talked about as systemic racism uh, has a lot of other kind of imbued meaning that people push back. So we can talk about that. But so I think, but look, that, that's not to deny that there is absolutely a substantial craziness on the right. Um, I think it's more crazy about the people who won't let go of Donald Trump, who is a despicable, um, unworthy human being. And the idea, that I think, less than on the education stuff. But, but there's a problem on the right. I think there's a huge problem on the left. Um, I don't think it's obviously most of the left. I think if you look at the polling on this, if you look what's going on, there's not a lot of first grade teachers who are eager to talk about human sexuality. First grade teachers want to like read stories to kids like, um, I think a lot of this is being driven by people with agendas who aren't actually in classrooms. 
but are yes. advocacy groups and foundations and ed school faculties uh, who are motivated by ideologies. They think what they're doing is good. It's a free country. I think they're wrong, but I don't think I don't think there's much of a sense of the real world of how this plays out for real children, real teachers and classrooms as they're going around doing a lot of these trainings and a lot of this advocacy that kind of has turned up the temperature. But here's the bigger point, I think. And I know I'm going way over, so way, way rambly, but um, look, no, we got I, it. I think it looks like this is where America is because we live in an age where there's a lot of incentives to be performative. Mm. So if you look at like the, the, the metrics on social media, only a tiny number of Twitter users are active users of Twitter. Um, and they tend to be the most extreme voices in the most bubblicious environments. And the way that they generate traffic, the way they monetize it, the way they generate attention is by saying crazy things that go viral. The same is true when you think about what goes on on Facebook. When you look at the analytics on who gets invited onto Fox or on the MSNBC panels, the members of Congress who are the most extreme are the one who get the most uh, most time um, yeah. on the shows. So what we've got is a media um, cultural environment right now that really rewards the people who are loudest and most extreme and then puts them in the middle of the spotlight. I firmly believe that 80% of America is sick of this shit. Um, I think you know the 10% on the right and the 10% of the left who are narcissistic and malformed and have all of kind of the pathologies of Donald Trump, you know, enjoy this stuff. And most of the rest, as normal people, are sick of it. But this is what dominates our news feeds. This is what shows up. We think they're speaking for the other side because we get tired of it and we just assume the other side thinks like they do. And so I think the real question here is, can we marshal that 75, 80% um, to change things in a way that has let so much be driven in the last half decade or more by the lunatics. And I'm optimistic we will. So I think where do things end? I think eventually we get to a healthier, more normal place, just like we did, you know, every every earlier time America went crazy. Yeah, I think, and by the way, uh, I, I wanna talk about your answer to the first question for the next three hours because it's so, right. <laughs> uh, there's so much to unpack there. Um, and I, it's part of the reason why we wanted to have you on, Rick, is because you know you are a conservative, both, both Vance and I are, are both liberal Democrats, but I read your stuff all the time. And I almost always agree with yep. what, you're, what, you're, what you're putting on paper because it, it makes sense. Um, it is not uh, from the, as you, you know, kind of call it, the, the 10% on one side and the, the 10% on the other side who are, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but who've just gone freaking nuts. And um, I think that there's a middle faction here. You know, I, I, I read about a few years ago, uh, a, a, a private school in New York City that was having five-year-olds write letters to the Cleveland Indians the the baseball team getting them to change the name of their team because they because it's offensive quote and quote unquote and um i at the time had a five-year-old and i was like look i'm a fan of the of the former washington redskins so not not far from where you are rick down in dc then then the washington football team now the washington commanders i was all for the name change um i would not be for my five-year-old being forced to write a letter to the cleveland indians having no idea what the, what that term even means. And so there's a, there's a, a craziness there. Um, you know, my, my cousins live in, uh, they live out, outside of DC. They live in Virginia. Their kid's high school was um, Thomas Jefferson. They were asked as a community if they wanted to rename the high school. Three quarters of the community said, don't rename it. They renamed it anyway. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, I mean, there's a lot to discuss about somebody like Jefferson and whether he should be judged through the, through the, 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 the lens of the, of the present times, but man, it feels like, it feels like there's just, there's, uh, people have gone off the rails, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, on a, on a couple levels, right. So the five-year-old thing, I mean, let's, let's do two things. Let's do the five, let's do the five-year-old thing and the Jefferson thing. Yeah. But look, um, you know, I mean, historically we've had conversations about like sex education in high school. Should it be in ninth grade? Is eighth grade too early? Should it be in 11th grade? What belongs in it? 
the idea that there is an age appropriateness for sensitive time is, is not new. I yeah. mean, this is baked in. And there's an understanding that different kids mature at different ages. And when you're trying to introduce something across an entire district or state to everybody this age, it's going to be too late for some kids and too early for others. And that's why we want to give parents a lot of discretion. And that's why we want to give, you know, there's people who are of strong faith and they feel differently than other than, than some other parents may. And we, I believe in respecting that. And so, for instance, you know, I've got a second grader right now. And so when I, you know, we talk about the Florida bill saying you shouldn't talk about gender and identity in K to three. That strikes me as anything but nuts. You know, it's been hung with this whole crazy don't say gay thing, which has nothing to do with the bill. But like, look, I read right now with my second grader, you know, I'm re we're reading Narnia. You know, we're reading yeah. Prince Caspian at the moment, yeah. uh, reading Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth, right? With my little guy, my five-year-old, we're reading uh, Mary Poppins right now. Why in God's name would we want to get into gender or identity about any of this? I don't want to promote any particular, it, it, the, you know, the kids are at a pre-sexual stage. Maybe some other children aren't. Yeah. And okay, and so be it. And so I'm, I'm open. So, but the idea that you want to uniformly take my seven-year-old who's at a very special stage when most of their life, most of a kid's life, they're going to spend worrying about all the other stuff that comes, yeah. romance and relationships. Look, the kid gets eight or nine years before that. Yeah, Let's let those kids blossom in that. I want him talking about talking lions and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, magical creatures. And why would we, why would we want to take that away from kids? That doesn't, we should be insensitive to the fact that there are children who are wrestling with that and we can make accommodations. But it seems to me entirely reasonable to say, look, there's a time and a place. And so, and, you know, and then this gets us to the Thomas Jefferson thing. Like, look, there's a time and a place and there's also a lot of virtues. I mean, I, I'll tell you what, right now for a president who was deeply read and a respected authority on history and literature and Greek and Roman civilization, and the arts, and music, and science, and a guy who had been an ambassador uh, and, and had written something like the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Um, I would give a whole lot for that guy to be president right now, whether <laughs> or not it was like of my political party. So the idea that the question is, is it okay to keep his name on a school is insane. The real question should be, should we be devoting three or four days and say 180 day school year in fourth grade to talking about Jefferson as a model. And should we be talking to somebody like Booker T. Washington or uh, Martin Luther King or Clarence Thomas or Thurgood Marshall or George Washington? And how much time do we spend wrestling with and understanding and appreciating these men and the, and the women who are their counterparts? Like that's, that's what ought to be the idea that like we ought to be stripping their names. And so this is why I say, that I have much more sympathy for the right, partly because I'm a because I'm biased, because I'm a partisan in this. But also, <laughs> I think to a lot of us on the right, it feels like we, you know, like we have been playing defense. Um, the yeah. calls to rename schools had, have not come from the right. Uh, the cause to tell children that America is, you know, a vile country have not come from the right. The idea that we're going to introduce people's children to things that we deem inappropriate in kindergarten or second grade have not come. And so from those of us on the right, it feels like the CRT bans, uh, the Florida legislation, so much of this is, you're right, um, that some of it is extreme and nutty, and I've said so when I don't defend it, and I don't defend any legislation that would ban concepts or that would ban books. That's, in a, that's unacceptable. I don't care if it's Republicans. I'm calling them out on it. But a lot of it's not doing that. A lot of it's actually just trying to figure out for public schools spending public money to educate the public children, how do public officials set some guardrails that rein in some of the stuff which feels like it's just beyond the pale and has been foisted upon parents and kids without a public hearing, without public conversation, without anybody saying, yeah, we've got broad agreement that this is the direction we want to go. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, great points and so much to unpack there. I'm going to hand it off to Vance in a second, yeah. but um, there's a um, a quote, and I, I, I forget who this is attributed to, so my apologies, but it goes like this. Your 
solution to a problem is in direct relation to how far from that problem you actually are. And uh, Vance and I work in schools in some of the most impoverished, um, most uh, underfunded, um, least infrastructure neighborhoods in the entire country. I've yet to meet a parent who cares if the white uh, educators read white fragility. Um, they want safe schools, black, white, Hispanic. We work with the Hmong, we work with the Hmong community in Milwaukee. We were like, I've yet to meet a parent who gives a damn about uh, whether the school is called Lincoln or Jefferson or whether we've read white fragility, but they care about if their kids have a safe school Right. and teachers who care about them and uh, rigorous curriculum and if they're being pushed. Um, and I, I feel like some of this stuff to your point is being, to use your term, foisted upon people by people who are a million miles away from what the actual problems in urban education actually are. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, like look at some of this stuff, right? The, uh, the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History a year ago, two years ago now, maybe, <laughs> you know, had this Abram Kendi kind of stuff up where they were saying that hard work uh, was a man, uh, was it uh, personal responsibility, I think, was the manifestation of, you know, uh, 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 of uh, systemic racism. Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, if you look at the polling on this, you know, 85% of Americans say they believe in like the value of perseverance, personal responsibility. And the numbers are actually a little higher among black Americans. I think probably they've had to work a little harder because of, you know, because of the, of the country. Now, you can argue, well, this is just all a product of false consciousness. And then, but no, no, no. I think actually most adults understand, you know, who don't hang out in Berkeley and, you know, fancy Ivy League schools and, did, 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 you know, and write esoteric professional development PowerPoints that they give like ASCD. I think most normal adults understand that like the way you help your kid live a good life is that you teach them to be honest, you teach them to work hard, you teach them to be good to people, you teach them to be tolerant, you teach them that you roll up your sleeves and make some sacrifices, and that these are things that unite us as Americans. Yep. And so the crazy stuff is that that's, I think, what equips these schools for success. And these lunatics are telling schools not to do it, or telling schools this is bad for kids, are you know, going going to the Smithsonian Museum and telling them, hey, tell people that these are evil things to talk about. Mm. And parents and teachers scared to talk about personal responsibility and hard work. And again, I mean, I don't know. You know, if you look at the polling, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons you see, for instance, Democratic Party is, uh, you know, bleeding the Latino vote at a huge rate. Yeah. I think why you saw that like a Republican young kid did way better among Biden voters in Virginia a couple months ago, and especially among uh, Black Virginians, because I think, you know, it turns out that the people who believe this woke nonsense are disproportionately like white Democrats with advanced degrees. And they're like a lot of Black and Latinos who generally identify as Democrats think this stuff is poison for their own children. Right. Rick, you know, talking about character and virtue in schools, you, you've written about KIPP and their rebranding um, going from something that makes perfect sense, work hard, be nice, to this, you know, fluffier, together, a future without limits. Um, and uh, we talk a lot about this in our own work. What, what are your thoughts on that? And can you give us a little bit more in, in, of your thoughts and insights on that? I mean, I think it's embarrassing, right? I mean, and it's not only rebranded, they could have done it subtly. They could have gone away from one of the great marketing slogans ever, work hard, be nice. Yeah. But, but instead, you know, the leadership at KIPP sent out a letter which said they were abandoning it uh, because it was a legacy of white supremacy culture, which goes, the idea that there are black or Latino families in KIPP who said, yes, I feel oppressed because you're teaching my child to work hard, be nice, I think is insane. It was really yeah. very much driven by, again, the white TFA types who work at, you know, who are staffing KIPP and working at Central, yeah. not what the parents and children wanted. Um, look, work hard, be nice is important because it sets a marker. It's shared values. We believe everybody should work hard. Everybody should be nice. This is about tolerance. It's about responsibility. These are great things. Now, 
if Kip said, look, this felt too transactional or this didn't feel like we like, you know, after George Floyd, it didn't feel like we were talking enough to children about making a difference in their world. OK, I respect that. But how about work hard, be nice, kick ass or work hard, be yeah. nice, change the world. So instead, what they did was they came up with this embarrassing, I think, you know, ludicrous notion that work hard, be nice is, an, is a bad mantra. And they replaced it with the kind of crap that Procter and Gamble, you know, would pay some like Madison Avenue, you know, you know, Columbia grads to sit around and drink coffee and brainstorm and the kind of thing you would see like on one of those posters, like hang in there, kitty. Like together or everything is possible. I mean, this could be a jet, this could be an airline company, could be like people selling yogurt. Like what the hell does it have to do with what Kip believes about itself? And I think that's the problem. Um, I don't believe much in mission statements, uh, but I think it's especially a problem when you adopt the mission statement, which is by design a show of, you know, that you're scared to say what you actually believe in. Right. Rick, you know, this this article, both of the articles together made me think about my time as a leader. And I was confronted one time about my like our use of data and just constant. And I was told that this this use of data was white supremacist. And I was like, um, I've been to schools throughout Europe, throughout Africa, throughout the world. They, they all use data. Yeah. And they, they put the, in and in, in goal setting. Oh, we're setting these high goals. That's why. Look, in, in schools across the world, um, in schools that are led by, you know, folks of color, they, they still set goals. And I, I think that one, that's one of the things I, I often struggle with, this idea of like how to to really help folks understand and see that this sort of like this this flag that we're all waving like. And, and we, we, Michael, you started it great with like, it's, it, it, it feels like crazy town now that every single thing we do now is, is hegemonic or white supremacist or not aligned to anything. And certainly there are things that we can talk about that, that, that are, that are, that, that are structurally racist, but it's, it's now percolated down to like just the basics of, of, of running organizations and schools. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. The data point, you know, you'll also hear, you know, that expectations of people uh, are on time. Timeliness is a racist construct. Uh, well, OK, well, in, in one sense, I mean, it's only racist in the sense that primitive uh, primitive civilizations don't worry about precise time because they don't have railroads and because they don't have clocks. And so the United States 250 years ago. Uh, timeliness was much less of a concern than it is once you actually have to worry about getting to the train before it leaves or getting on the ferry before it leaves. And the same, so, but that's not particularly, there's no race component here. Right. That, you know, if you work at an, a, uh, you know, if you work in air traffic control anywhere in Africa or Asia, it turns out you're really concerned about time. Yeah. <laughs> If you bring in planes at the wrong time, they can bump into each other and people die. If you talk to surgeons, you know, you know, delegations that come through D.C. and they'll visit whether they're coming from Kenya or South Africa or South Korea. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, they want to know how do they teach their kids to be entrepreneurial and dynamic oh. problem solvers and engineers. There's nothing, nothing for pride. I mean, the arrogance of thinking there's something white or American about caring that a bridge stays up or that you will actually, you know, be precise enough to conduct a successful heart surgery or that mm -hmm. like actually care about finishing um, yeah. the code project on time or developing a new vaccine to defeat a disease on time, you know, faster is better. The idea that anything of this either has pigmentation or a national identity is the most bizarre kind of arrogance I can imagine. Look, these things are good. They're good because they help us live better lives. And get, opening the doors to this stuff to kids is good for those kids because it lets those kids be the doctors and engineers and nuclear physicists instead okay. of... So, I mean, if there's anything that's racist, it's telling white kids, 
yeah, you need to know how to do these problems rapidly and precisely and telling black and Latino kids, this ain't your culture. Because what that does is like, and the idea that somehow the opposite <laughs> has become like normal and entrenched, I think a lot of it's just people are scared to call bullshit. Uh, I think people are so scared of being called names and being yelled at that it's easier to just go, well, you have a point. And look, and I think, there, and I think if I was a progressive, and I like to think I'm at least like a reasonable person, even though I'm not, <laughs> it's like, look, you know, like, there's, like you guys are saying, look, there's real problems to address. There's way too many children in this country you can't read. And those yeah. are way higher among black children in the inner city in places yeah. like Milwaukee and Newark and New York City. That's a real problem. It's a problem because I believe in this country, because I believe that every kid deserves a shot. There's way too many kids who don't feel welcome at school. There's way too many teachers who don't know how to deal with these kids responsibly. And so the crazy thing is if we set aside all of the ideological nuttiness and it was like, look, Hess, don't you think we have to solve these problems? Then I'm nodding my head. And if they're like, all right, well, let's talk about ideas to solve the problems. Then I'm on board. But these folks, by being crazy, have made it, instead of letting me be an ally, have, have, have put me in a position where I feel like I have to be on the other side just because what they're doing seems so bad for kids and so bad for the country. And it's interesting because um, <laughs> it's just, I, I have so many thoughts here. Well, the first is, and Vance, we've talked about this, this almost weaponizing of diversity, equity, and inclusion to yeah. uh, allow for uh, a lack of accountability on my part, if I'm a school leader and say that setting goals and using data is inherently racist, I am now off the hook, assuming I get let off the hook for uh, having to get results. And Rick, you talk about the amount of kids who can't read. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the, the true tragedy of our time, right? That this is happening all over this country. And so that really makes me, I think that there are some people who are, I think there are some people who genuinely believe that this is the right way to the right way to be and and not don't let's not set goals and let's not hold kids accountable i think in some case there are some bad faith actors who are like hey you know what it's just easier for me not to insist that my staff get to school on time because i don't want to have those tough conversations um recently we were at a school and we went into a classroom and kids are like laying on the desks and sitting sideways and kids are sitting in groups of three when they're supposed to be sitting and listening to the teacher and i asked the assistant principal, what's the expectation for posture? And her response as a white woman, she, she's a white woman, I'm not saying her response, as, but she's a white woman. And she said, uh, well, we're, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of policing posture. And I said, yeah, but they've got to sit up, right? I mean, we've got to agree, like, and they've got to face the front, right? Like, I can't, we can't argue about that, right? Because that's, you just can't learn as well when you're laying down and you're sideways. And it, she eventually agreed, but it, it wasn't it wasn't an easy an easy an easy sell um, and so I, I think that that part of it makes me makes me nervous this like I'm gonna I'm gonna use this to let myself off the hook for being for being great for kids well you know and it's weird because you know if you remember like uh, I think it was James Herndon remember the way it's supposed to be yeah. like look from him it was like a you know his, his year teaching I think it was in Boston um, if I remember right like in 60 yeah. you know it was like one of this like early 70s wave of books. And it was a different, you know, it was the same kind of thing. Like he went in and look, uh, you know, Boston schools in the late 60s, a million problems, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything yeah. they were doing. Uh, uh, but, but his solution to it, the stuff he bragged about was he was having the kids, there was a whole chapter I remember called like the top 40 because he wound up in order to get the kids writing, he would, they, they liked listening to the radio. So he would have them write the name of the top 40 songs from that week's like Casey Kasem kind of like yeah. top 40 countdown. And he had this whole elaborate thing of why this was good. Uh, like even his self-serving descriptions in that book though, there was one girl, like whoever it was, and she was at the board writing and a couple of kids were calling out the titles and the other kids were goofing off. But he brags in the pages of like this, you know, 50 year old bestseller about like the engagement he was producing. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what an easy way to let yourself off the hook. You've yeah. got a couple of kids doing something that's not actually very educational and you get to come off as like a hero with the bestseller from random house for like yeah. 
and I and so I think there's a certain thing that as much as I've been critical of like No Child Left Behind and kind of uh, you, you know the ways in which we tried to shrink learning to fit like reading a math test based accountability. Like one of the, the great victory of No Child Left Behind was it said, no, no, no. Educators are responsible for teaching kids and we're responsible for setting expectations and creating learning environments. And we need to use tests in a, a little differently than we use them. But like the goal here, and again, this is a thing where we can have constructive, healthy arguments and pedagogical conversations. Yeah. Folks who are worried about advocating for this group of children or that community of learners, like, and they can say, Rick, you don't get it. You've never been in that place. And, I, and I'm open to that. Like, I'm open to that. But what I'm not open to is what feels like a, re, a recycling of this old Herndon stuff, where I'm going to say, yeah, all of your ideas of learning and knowledge and, you know, responsibility and uh, attention paying don't apply here anymore. It's a whole different world. And I want to meet the kid who I'm going to, you know, I want to meet the kid who's going to become the pediatrician I send my child to, who never sat up in class who tuned out during biology, who tuned out during algebra, and now I'm going to entrust, no, no, no. So who's going to wind up becoming the pediatrician? Who's mm. going to wind up building the bridges that I want to drive over? Who's going to wind up becoming the pilot handling that? It ain't going to be those kids. Yeah. And so the idea that there's anything morally defensible here, I think, like you're saying, is it's a self-serving fiction. Yeah, Rick, you bring up um, NCLB and, and and testing, and you know a lot of some districts and states um, are moving away from standardized testing. Even things like gifted programs, um, admission standards. Uh, where do you land on that? Where do, where are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I mean, I think so. It's, I think it's you know like with all this stuff, like right when we talk about systemic racism, like definitions matter a lot. Like, are we saying that like you know? So same thing. What, what do we mean by testing? Like, what are we trying to do here? And I remember um, when uh, Meryl Tisch was like chair of the Board of Regents in New York. And I remember having this back and forth with her. Um, and and I, I think she wanted, there was a quote in the paper she finally did on all this whole thing, where she was like, uh, look, parents are happy to send their kids to the doctor. Why would parents have a problem with these tests? And this was like during uh, when New York was rolling out, I guess, I think New York was Park, might've been SBAC, Common Core Testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, are you serious? Like, let's think about this. I send my kid to the doctor. I sit in the weight room for 30 minutes. We go in for a 15 minute visit. The doctor checks my kid out right there, right then. She either says, hey, Gray's okay or Gray's not. Here's the medication, here's the follow-up. I leave in less than 60 minutes. I know how his health is. I know if he needs glasses. I know what medicines I gotta get, all done. I send him for the test she wanted kids to take. 10 hours over two or three days, kids sitting, filling in bubbles for a test that ain't gonna come back for four or five months. As a parent, I'm never gonna hear what happened on this test. Maybe I get mm -hmm. something mailed home that I can't possibly decipher. Yep. Uh, the school, why do the school want it? Well, he's already on the next grade. His teacher won't with it. Mostly they want it so that like politicians and superintendents in the state education agency can use it to create school ratings and do teacher evaluations that have nothing to do with my kids learning. So that's actually why parents have such problems with this. So what's the answer? Well, one, we need assessments, which are actually useful for parents and educators. Mm -hmm. So we've got to give parents information. Here's what it means for your kid. Here's what, here's what you should look at. It's got to be understandable by parents who don't have like advanced degrees. It's got to like, schools have got to like be clear like, all right, if you're a parent and you have questions, who do you ask? What do you do with this information? Um, you want that kind of assessment to be rapid turnaround, so much more like, uh, you know, right, formative, quick speed, and we want to be confident educators are using it in real time. I also want, uh, you know, ESSA and CLB style state testing because I want a backdrop to look at what kids are learning and what kids know, just like what the National Assessment of Educational Progress taking place regularly. Um, but we need to understand what those roles are and that we got to make sure that testing does not drive every day in the life of a child and that in school and that those scores are used in ways that are appropriate and constructive. And I think partly by allowing what policymakers did 
to drive the testing cart. We wound up with tests weren't that educationally useful. We wound up with schools trying to do data strategy stuff uh, built on state assessments, which weren't actually designed for that purpose. We wound up with schools which went test crazy with a lot of test prep um, that sucked instructional time away and made school less interesting yep. and less robust for kids. We cut parents out of the loop in a way that most parents didn't know what to do with any of this. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's never test or don't test. Um, you know, a good teacher is always assessing kids in ways formal and informal. Uh, good school systems should always be assessing kids in ways formal and informal. So we need tests, but we got to be much more purposeful about how we're using them, I think. It's interesting. Vance and I both kind of cut our teeth at the same charter school network in Philly. And I remember, Vance, I'm not sure if you remember this, but when we moved from like, you know, X amount of tests per year to a much smaller number. And I remember the rationale being like, we don't need all these tests to find out that our kids are below grade level in X, Y, and Z subjects. We need to actually spend more time teaching them and not assessing them, right? Yeah, Rick, you brought this point that I I think I'd never, um, you know, even as a school leader thought about how much we leave the parents out of the loop on a lot of these these issues. And when we meet with them and say, you know, your your child is struggling with reading or X and they look at you like, what do you mean? Um, and I guess like the thing that I'm, I'm always just stuck with is like, and, and maybe you, we answered this at the beginning of like, why do we keep doing this madness? Why are we just like this? This is absurd to me. And maybe it's because the, the, the folks with the loudest voice and the biggest pockets are able to keep this, this sort of, you know, hamster wheel going, but it is maddening that you're absolutely right. Like we talk about standardized test scores and the majority of parents, when you see the, the document, you can't decipher any of the information on it. I struggle with it and I administer the test. Right, right. And, and you know, and the information they get is mostly aggregate. And like, yeah. parent, all you care is, what does this tell me about where my kid is? Right, yeah. what a parent wants is something with a couple of yellow and red and green lights, which says like, hey, your kid's lagging on phonemic awareness. Um, hey, uh, there's there's some uh, elements of like the third and fourth grade math scope and sequence, which your kid just clearly hasn't picked up. Like that's useful for parents because then they yeah. can say, what do I do about it? Who do I talk to? Like instead mm. of saying, well, or even like your kid's at the 63rd percentile. Like, all right, <laughs> I don't, well, what do I do with that? Is that like, <laughs> and, and it's, you know, but, 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 but here's what I think it is. So I think a lot of it is because so much of the testing and accountability movement has really been driven by people who aren't educators. So you think about like the NCLB fight was very much about trying to hold schools accountable, about, you know, Kennedy trying to make sure there was transparency, particularly for um, populations that had been left behind. And so that was the first half of the office. And then we got caught up in testing as a uh, tool for teacher evaluation. And so that became from like 08 to 13, uh, you know, side by side with Common Core. And we want like tests of like, and then we, you know, and then by the time we get to ESSA and we start talking about other ways of measuring, right. and now pretty quickly we've, we've moved on. Gates Foundation said, well, it's about co-designing. It's about this, you know, stuff built of Tony Brake. And, oh, and, yeah. and so what happens is we never actually spent much time in the last quarter century, say, of the accountability conversation saying, all right, what do we need to give parents that can actually help them help us. What would it look like to build our testing cycles around things that are going to give teachers, like how frequently do teachers actually, I'm not aware of, and I might have just missed it, but if so, it means it hasn't been high profile probably because I follow a lot of stuff. I'm not aware of any uh, research into how frequently you need to replenish teacher data points on kids. So Mm -hmm. how quickly are those like assess uh, the form of assessment data um, out of date? Uh, mm-hmm. Is is every two weeks? Um, a, 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 you know, can you go every four weeks without much loss? Is every six weeks like so? You've got stuff like new classrooms where they're doing like the exit tickets every day. You've got mm-hmm. folks who are doing form assessments every six weeks. I literally have no idea like how often you need to do it to equip teachers. Like that would be an interesting teacher-centered strategy. Like how yeah. long do they need refresh data? How do we build a strategy about three or six weeks? Or, and I think very few schools approach it that way. 
And have we said, how, how do we get parents information and what works for them? And so, you know, it's not doing this instead of, I would not, I, 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 you know, I, I've argued, you know, I was one of the folks on the right during ESSA who said, no, 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 we should keep the NCLB testing, not the interventions um, and not the identification of schools in need of improvement stuff, but we should keep the 17 assessments um, because we need that kind of visibility and it provides a scaffold. Um, but that should be like an overlay of general visibility. The question of what works for parents and educators is something that I think we need to wrestle with in a way we haven't. Yeah. Rick, pivoting, uh, pivoting somewhat, uh, Leah Thomas is a, she's a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also transgender. She's been at the center of controversy, not um, due to her transition as much as due to the fact that she just wins all the time, right? And whether or not it's fair um, that she has transitioned from a man to a woman and is now racking up win after win. Um, I, I think this is a really complicated and complex issue. One that I personally find disheartening that even questioning the fairness of this or even engaging in a debate around whether it's fair uh, could paint one as transphobic or um, anti-trans, uh, anti which um, you know I certainly am not. Um, but I do think it's an interesting conversation, and I'd love to know where you stand on the on this debate and whether or not it's fair for the transgender athlete to compete. Um, are, are we sacrificing in some regard fairness for everyone, um, for fairness for one? Yeah, you know, and this gets us back, I mean, a, a little bit of this gets us back to these definitional things again, right? Like, yeah. I, I, I'm... I have a big problem when you go in and you want to teach kids that America is systemically racist or a slaveocracy. Um, I'm totally on board if you want to tell me that, you know, black children um, do worse in American schooling and are more likely to live in poverty. And we have to take like so for me, there's a, a you know, there's very useful distinctions here and how we address that. You know, maybe I will buy some of your broader ideological stuff, but very likely not. But, well, I think the same issue arises here with you know, with like the transgender question and, and Thomas. Um, I have, I, I, I firmly believe that every, you know, everybody in a school and a college needs to be treated with respect. Um, there is no room for Thomas to be made to feel, um, to be harassed, to be called names. Um, now, the, you know, I was starting to say, you know, to feel, you know, to feel uh, excluded. Well, except that, you know, Thomas is entitled to feel welcome and supported, but so is every other student. Yeah. And the question of whether or not people should be respectful and courteous and welcoming of Thomas as a student uh, on the college campus is one thing. Whether Thomas has the right to have once swam for like the Penn men's team and then decide I identify as a woman and then swim on the women's team. Um, does not just affect Thomas. It affects everybody else on that team, everybody else swimming in the NCAAs. And so this is kind of a classic positive negative liberty question, right? A libertarian would say, you can do what you want so long as it doesn't impact others. Well, yeah. now we're at the point where Thomas's decisions are having a clear impact on others. And so look, I, I, it seems to me that by, you know, I, I, I think it's perfectly fine. If you're going to have women's sports, you organize them on the basis of biology. Um, that seems to me the straightest of lines, uh, but I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm open to hearing persuasive arguments on this, uh, but I, I, I think the idea that there's, that, that, that it should be in any way <laughs> off limits to raise the question, that there ought to be any kind of presumption that Thomas, you know, that Thomas should get her way is nuts. Um, you know, and frankly, I think we've taught, we've got ourselves into an insane place on this. Uh, you, you, you know, um, Justice Brown, uh, Judge Brown, uh, President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, yeah. uh, had uh, had her Senate confirmation here in the other week. And yeah. she's going, you know, um, and she was frequently lauded by the president, by senators. She's only the, uh, I think, the sixth woman to sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, she'll be the fourth woman on the current Supreme Court. She's the first black woman. Uh, she, if confirmed, she'll be the first black woman ever to be the Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Uh, Senator Marshall Blackburn from Tennessee asked uh, Judge Brown, um, 
how do you define a woman? And Judge Brown said, ah, that's over. You know, I can't, I can't. I'm not a biologist. Yeah. Well, that's insane. I mean, the president clearly is convinced she's a woman. She's clearly talked about herself as a woman. She talked about herself as a mother. She said she would be the fourth woman on the Supreme Court. So she clearly, in her mind, has what it means for Kagan or Sotomayor or Barrett to be women, as well as herself. But she can't offer a definition of what she thinks constitutes a woman to United States. Rick, what's the concern there? Why is she not? Is it that she'd be afraid of the backlash from the, as they've been called, the woke mob? Is, it, is that the concern? I think that's got to be the presumption. I mean, you know, to, it, 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 you know, it, it just strikes me, uh, you know, it, it's the same thing that has cropped up um, when uh, health, the Department of Health and Human Services, for instance, under President Biden, uh, has tried to rename programs for mothers so that they're not programs for birthing persons. Um, I yeah. don't know. I've never known anybody but a mother to give birth. And, uh, you know, uh you know, if you give a birth, you're a mother. Um, and that seems to me, you know, Orwell wrote about the tyranny of language and yeah. how muddled language is the opposite of clear and serious conversation and thought. And to get to a point where somebody's going to sit on the Supreme Court, it, you know, who bills herself as a mother and a woman, is scared to say what she thinks that means or is unable to think what say what she thinks that means. Uh, I think is a hugely problematic place for serious, you know, constructive discussion of these issues. And, and Rick, that was that, that was going to be my point. I think that folks are so afraid to use terms and to define things that when someone asks someone a question like, "How do you define a woman?" that the the multiple things that go through your head of, "Well, if I say this." I am going to offend the, this group of folks. If I use a biological term, I am going to offend an entirely different group of people. And as educators, I find myself in those situations at all. I mean, we have been in places where we have spoken to groups and we've accidentally said, hey, you guys. And then folks are offended. And we've switched to like, hey, friends. Well, you're not our friend. Um, folks, like, and, and hold on, start, this is important. Somebody got offended because they said it's presumptuous to say that you're friend, that we're friends. We don't yeah. know each other yet. You can't say friends to me. And so we're like, okay, hey, everyone, right. like, you know, and, and, and this, and, and so like, I think like to, to like, and, you know, to agree with what you're saying, right? Like I, I watched um, Judge Jackson sort of, you know, the, her, the mental exercise that she did um, you know, and as a judge, she always has to stand in this neutral zone. And I, and if the question, if she took it as a judge, how do you define it or as a person? Right. Like and you become and it is absurd. And we, we and this talks about the madness that we've discussed earlier that we can't even have discussions about, um, you know, if a, a swimmer who has transitioned, you know, can, can we even have that conversation and, and all of the, the fuss that comes along and you have a stance, I have a stance, let's engage in that conversation and not be fearful because if you take a stance and say something, now you're going to be, you know, you're going to get backlash. I'm sure there will be backlash or, you know, someone's going to say like, oh, you took the stance, but I think it goes to this madness. And I think it goes to what we talked about with Kip changing their model. Like how do we get out of this craziness where I can say, Hey friends, let's let's get started and not worry about the backlash of someone not feeling like that you know that we have that relationship and we, we're friends. Yeah. Well, you know, you know the, so the most interesting thing for me was uh, Maddie Kearns is reporting from um, I guess it was Georgia Tech where they had the NCAA's mm -hmm. during, during you know the during the swimming meets and uh, so for all of the immediate attention right for a couple of days there were constant headlines and news about Thomas and this. Turns out, apparently, there were uh, 20 people who were protesting against Thomas participating outside. And there were 12 people protesting for Thomas. So 32 people cared enough to show up. But you saw this for days. Uh, you see this sometimes, especially when lunatic conservative groups are holding these, uh, you know, announcing rallies for DC. 
there will be more reporters and counter demonstrators than there are protesters. You get 53 people from like some neo-Nazi group at a hotel ballroom, and there's 100 reporters covering 63 neo-Nazis. And I, you know, it's kind of like Blues Brothers, man. I I, I hate Illinois neo-Nazis. I got no use for neo-Nazis. Um, I will disavow them all the time. I'm happy to do that. Um, but the larger point here is we're letting the conversation be driven by 63 people in a nation of 350 million. Yeah. Uh, the point is that I deep, um, you know, my, I, I am deeply convinced that most people, if you just sit down and you're talking at Applebee's or McDonald's or, you know, on, and, and, on somebody's, you know, at a park somewhere, and you're talking about Thomas to somebody who hasn't been hyper, you know, made hyper aware in like elite universities or teacher training seminars, that they kind of come out that, look, we've got to be respectful of Thomas. Yeah. There's real issues about whether Thomas is impeding on, uh, on these other swimmers. And that it's kind of gray, but here's where I think. And I think that's 80% of people. And so I think, well, what's the way out of this? You know, and especially in education, I think the problem is we have given the keys to the car to the crazies. Uh, yeah. School districts, you know, are seeking out the uh, D'Angelo's and the Kendi's and their disciples. And they are built, you know, and the ASCDs and the AERAs uh, are putting these folks front and center. And they put all of this into who's going to be invited to speak. And the major ed foundations put this into all their grant criteria. And I think it is hugely removed from the real lives of 80 plus percent of, you know, American families, um, 80 plus percent of teachers, yeah. 80 plus percent of principals. And so I think part of the problem is what do those of us who understand there's real important sensitive issues here do to kind of grab the steering wheel back from the loudest, craziest, most agenda driven people? sitting behind the wheel. Yeah, and I think just uh, quickly, um, Vance, and I know you have pretty fancy taste. So Applebee's uh, that Rick mentioned, that's a restaurant um, that people, <laughs> like, they go there, they, they uh, you can get like buffalo wings. And um, so I know that, uh, <laughs> make sure you're clear on that. Uh, and, and I think Rick, it's part of the reason why we wanted to have you on is because I think that if the three of us sat down and we talked about things like universal healthcare or like student, uh, debt forgiveness that we'd probably disagree mm -hmm. about uh, about those stances. Uh, I think what um, what we're trying to get back to is a place of and maybe based on what you're saying, maybe it's not to get back to. Maybe we just need to be more vocal. I think we are we are pretty vocal when somebody says like, "Hey, I don't I don't believe in setting goals." We are we are we are like, "Yeah, we actually disagree," and that's not skyrocket, and that's not the way we do yeah. things. Um, but maybe it is more that 80% that you're talking about. Well, but it's also you can't do it logic. by yourself. Because if you're the yeah. only guy saying it, then yeah. they will say, well, we got to find somebody who's more aligned. Or yeah. I'll say, we're not going to write a check for this. So partly, you know, the problem is that there's strength in numbers in something like this. And if the folks who have either, you know, who are either uh, true believers in the agenda for reasons, you know, many for good reasons, God bless. Everybody gets to come out that they are. But if the folks who have embraced the agenda or who've acquiesced to the agenda, yeah. it's just easier than it's easier to kind of go with than to stand up. If there's enough momentum like that, it becomes very hard for you guys. It can become suicidal for folks who are trying to do the work you're doing to be the only one standing in the way. So partly, I think this is about, you know, this is where guys like me have to try to be effective at, because I can't get canceled in the same way. I can't get fired. I'm safer um, than a lot of other folks. And so I'm trying to do what I can to help. Yeah. I also need more people who, you know, and I know that there's lots of folks who are like vice presidents and CEOs of ed advocacy groups of, uh, you know, charter school networks and school, you know, superintendents and deputy super districts who've said to me quietly, well, Rick, some of this stuff's crazy, and I'm doing what I can. And we need more of those folks, I think, to be more comfortable standing up and saying, look, I understand what you guys are trying to do. I'm with you on this and this, but I got to call bullshit on that. And if more of those folks did that, um, I think this would all start to, you know, this will all start to become, you know, more manageable. Yeah. 
Rick, in one of my favorite of your writings, um, second only to the foreword, um, Skyrocket Critique of Leadership, um, Cage Busting Leadership is one of my one of my favorites. Um, you talk about um, how you know educators stepping outside of the box and making change within um, their control, and, and you make it very clear that there are lots of areas to do that. What are educators getting right um, in 2022? Oh man, uh, you know, I mean, I think you know. The, the biggest thing right now is I think getting schools to feel like places kids want to be um, after pandemic, after closure, uh, after a lot of crappy remote learning. Um, you know, we brought kids back to masks and social distancing and, you know, all the things that make schools feel like schools for kids. Uh, we pretty much sucked out. We sucked out the extracurriculars, getting to see your friends at lunch. Yeah. You know, getting to like talk and tell jokes at lunch, uh, getting like, we made all of that. Much. So, so one, I think the, the big challenge uh, is to make kids feel like school is a place they want to be in. Um, even though half the kids tell us they're bored, right? In high school when they're there. Um, yeah. it, you know, so, so, so it's, and, I, and, and it, how many educators are doing that? I literally have no earthly clue. Um, I, I know there's some educators getting that right, but I don't know how many. Um, I think the same thing we got to do is we got to figure out how do we figure out which kids got hurt most by all of this craziness mm. inflicted on them? Because we kept bars open and schools closed. How, how do we figure out which kids, um, not just demographically, we know it was more black and Latino kids. We know it was more low income kids, but which individual kids, how are we, how are we using diagnostics to figure out which kids are really getting slammed for falling off our radar and to re-engage them and to come up with strategies and, you know, I think there's individual um, providers and schools that are doing some of this. We need, everybody needs to be doing, uh, you know, and I, I think the third thing for me, the, the big thing, um, which I just wrote about uh, this big national affairs essay um, in January is look, um, the big thing that we need to get right is we need to ask ourselves, why do we keep having the same problems over and over? We've been having a staffing shortage yep. for a century. Um, it's always the crisis is always around the curve, but well, we have chosen to create schools where we have keep hiring staff a lot faster than we add kids. That makes it harder and harder to get good staff. That's a problem. We have a pension crisis that is going to that is sucking a place like LA huge number of dollars out of the classroom. How do we how do we address that? What do we do? Um, we need we we have all this technology at our disposal but kids already spend too much time on screens and very little of this technology feels like it is letting teachers do more of the important work. Teachers don't feel like they're spending more time being good, engaged human instructors. They feel like they're spending a lot of time helping kids figure out passwords and yeah. parents deal with like balky tech. So like that, how do, how do we like, how do we like look beyond the, the turn? Um, this is a good moment to it. Everybody's, you know, kind of their games are out of rhythm. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of money that's sluicing through that the feds put on the table, more than 200 billion. Um, so, you know, what are they getting right? So, sorry, I didn't really answer the question. This, the, These are, I think, the most important things. And some people are getting them right. But like I always tell reporters who call, dude, I am so far away from the ground that I, you know, all I know is what I hear, you know, is usually what I hear secondhand about somebody seems to be doing it right. And so I'm the last guy who should ever be like kind of offering testimonials to that specific thing. Well, I'm not sure we agree on that point because your insights have been uh, for years and certainly on our show here today, been incredibly powerful and um, concise and uh, salient, at least for me. And I hope for our listeners as well. We've already taken you six minutes over what you were able to, to do for us today, Rick. So we, we can't thank you enough. Um, we would uh, we would love to have you back at some point because I feel like we just scratched the surface of this conversation, and I imagine some people are going to be really uh, interested in uh, in what we talked about today. Would you uh, come back and join us at some point, Rick? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, right? I mean, partly because this is one of the frustrating things we talked about all these really important big questions, but that meant we had like almost no time to talk about I don't know stuff that's like instructional or pedagogy yeah. or curricular or like what happens in schools. So yeah, I'd love yeah. to. Next time we'll talk, we'll make sure we're talking about what happens in schools. And I'm hoping that with uh, 
things opening up, we'll be able to see you down either in Philly or in DC for a drink real soon. Absolutely. And um, for, uh, for Antonio and the team at Skyrocket, thanks so much for joining us here on Informal Observations. Until next time, everybody, until next season, uh, we'll see you all then. And until then, keep on rocking. This was Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. Sign up for our mailing list at wewillskyrocket.com. Look out for our next episode.